Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot. Hi, I'm Derek. And I'm Drew. We are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because we think it sticks to our brain better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. Now, to use our most used phrase on wonder tour, uh, without further ado, let's, Derek, we're going to journey into our, our next cartoon here. So let's rip the foundation out. Let's let's get our, our Boy Scout babies uh, in the air, flying in their helium balloons. Let's take off in our blimp or whatever we're doing here. We are journeying into Disney's Up. You can have my house, but I'm dead. All right, welcome to Wonder Tour. Um, just had to do my, I don't know, my best Carl Fredrickson uh, to start off with. And um, this is a neat little story. You know, Disney's up. And it, I keep saying Disney's up, but Drew, it's Pixar's up. But I know. I think I, it's I advertised as Disney's, as Disney's up, though. Like, if oh, you're trying to find yeah. it, just for SEI, up, obviously, is not a word that... Uh, or SEO. I, always, I don't know why I always go and <laughs> say the word <laughs> say the SEI acronym instead. But yeah, for SEO, for search engine optimization, I'm pretty sure they have they put Disney's in front of it, don't they? Maybe they put Pixar's uh, in front of it. Yeah, I mean, it. Disney's definitely in there somewhere as a keyword, right? Associated to up, then you're you're good, you're golden. So, um, but hey, you know, search engine mechanics, that's a different show for us. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so. You know, today we're we're talking through the movie up um, and the leadership lessons that can be learned and gleaned from that. Um, it is very it's a it's a quaint little movie, a charming movie. Uh, Drew, you were telling me before about how it's kind of like a fairy tale. So why don't you jam on that for a second? Let's let's talk about that. Yeah, I think this movie feels a lot like a more like a fairy tale. There's suspension of disbelief. Often science doesn't really hold a place in this movie. While we had we see some like inkling of it, the idea is like this movie is about adventure. Like from the get go, um, we're hearing about the spirit of adventure. Uh, we see Carl, the the old man in the movie, though we do see him grow up. So he, as a kid, he's going to the movies and he's seeing um, he's seeing Charles, this famous explorer in this black and white film, and he's just fascinated with him. Right? I think that. This movie is all about that. It's all about the disbelief because adventure is about like the impossible becoming a reality. It's about experiencing new and, and unheard of things. So like the, the whole idea of that, I mean, even in the fact like the bird that they're kind of going after Kevin, right? Kevin is like this rainbow bird. It's like it's it's almost seems like it's it's something pulled out of your imagination. Um, for me, it's like the what's the name of the guy in Inside Out, the imaginary friend in Inside Out? Yeah, oh, yeah. Bang bong. Yeah, Bing Bong. Exactly. It almost seems like Bing Bong, doesn't it? <laughs> it's a little like Bing Bong. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's funny that you're mentioning some of these 
creative parallels because like I, I find myself doing that now, you know, being an adult and where it may have appeared new to me every time I saw a Disney movie or whatever. And now I'm looking back at them as I watch them, I'm like, okay, so the concept started here in this movie and then they used that again and they slightly twisted it and then reused it in this movie. And uh, so I think that's pretty interesting. I think there is, there's some kind of a, a mega narrative there that I don't quite grasp. Um, but anyway, um, well, yes. That's a good story, right? It's good story is calling back to other stories that have a strong mind space. Because when you do it, you can amplify the effect. So when we see, um, like in, in Up, when you see the house throttling through the storm with the, with the lightning flashing around it and stuff like that, to me, that brings Wizard of Oz to mind. And so I'm immediately thinking like, whoa, okay, we are like kind of traversing from like the, we're not in Kansas anymore, right? They're going to to the the Paradise Falls area, wherever that, they, they do say it's in South America, so it's not in some truly fantastical world, but it seems like it once you get there, right? Things like you have talking dogs and you have birds that, you know, rainbow birds that are kind of like, you know, extinct or whatever. So there's a lot of crazy stuff going on there. Um, I, I like that a lot. I mean, it, it's calling back to some of like the earliest stories that humans attach to. You know, for us, we don't have a lot of those stories written down. But Greek mythology is some of the earliest stories that we have that are work that we have like the record of now. Yeah. Well, I, I always thought that when I watched it, I thought when he arrived there, it just seemed really prehistoric to me. <laughs> it was almost like, <laughs> is there a caveman that's going to jump out here and so it, because it's I think it's because it's so deserted and there's just really nobody around. Right. And then they have you know, they, they really encounter mostly the dogs and they keep it pretty focused on, you know, what's what, you know, what the characters are in the story and that kind of thing. So um, where do we want to pick up the story at that makes sense about the background? I think it's good to talk about Carl and Ellie um, as far as, you know, because it provides a lot of understanding uh, for some of his later, you know, um, I'll say choices and decisions, right? Yeah, I think we set the groundwork with Carl and Ellie. So we first introduced to the two of them as kids, and Carl's kind of a shy kid who doesn't talk very much, but he's enthused by the movie that he sees. And we see soon afterwards, he's kind of like acting it out. And he runs into Ellie, who is already has like a much more mature version of the adventure that Carl wants to go on. And she's got this, you know, this rundown house that she's kind of like create made a uh, I don't even know what you want to call it, made it into like a ship or something like that, that she's using to or just like a treehouse to kind of like traverse between the reality and this fantasy world that that she has in her imagination. And she invites Carl into that space and Carl is really forever grateful for that because she stokes his imagination and she gives, she kind of lends him her dreams. It seems like, right? Yeah. I mean, she, she leads him for sure. Um, and gives him really, I don't know, maybe he was wandering around not having a purpose. You know, we never get to see the parents of these kids, um, except, Maybe at the wedding. I'm not sure if they even see him then, but I didn't really pay too much attention to that. They're part. in the pews. Yeah, they're in the pews, I think. But they're like, okay. yeah. yeah. So it's more of a role that they have. Yeah. And I think if you think about a kid's life, I mean, a lot of that does get normalized out where 
you know, your parents are there, but when you're thinking about your friends and that kind of thing, um, you're thinking about how, um, you know, your, your relationship to your friends, you know, not necessarily uh, putting your parents into that equation. Yeah, I think when you, it's so interesting. I love coming of age stories. I, I think this is, that's really why I'm such a big fan of Disney and Pixar movies. The coming of age story is just something that I get. Uh, so it, I, I've just been so attached to, and I, I want to go back to over and over again, whether it's me realizing that I still have more like coming of age to do in my soul um, and more character development to do, or it's me reflecting on the coming of age that ha that's happened throughout my life. Um, you know, most people go through that coming of age, you know, in a certain 10 to 15 year period, really. But we all continue to do it over time, I believe. So it's 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 one of those story arcs that keeps playing out over and over again. And we don't get to see it. So it's really weird here. Right. Like like you're saying, we don't actually get to see that part of Carl's life. Um and Ellie's life, we do get to see they're kind of mellowing out, or at least it seems like that to me, where they become more mature and they they start to, you know, they keep spending their adventure budget on on necessities, you know, paying for a tire for the car and stuff like that. As they're growing up and, and, and they're getting older, before we get to, you know, the sad part, the tear-jerking part of the movie, is there anything that sticks out to you, Derek, that you want to catch? Well, I mean... Um, I think the most important thing to note is that through this uh, entire set of scenes, you have the same melodic notes being played. And I want you to remember that because through the movie, we've got this repeating over and over and over and the way that when you shift the key up, let's say you get into the, the, the high keys and you move the tempo down, that's a really sad moment, right? Um, and there are different times where there's a lot of like action. And so you really hear more of a, a thematic and action version of that. And I think that right there uh, is the symbolism of adventure in your life. It may not be explicit music. Um, but this movie really drove that home to me, Drew, is about, you know, how um, there are sequences of symbols, you know, whether that's people's faces, interactions uh, on a regular basis that we have as leaders, whether it's in our family or at work, you know, um, that the that's giving these sequences of life meaning and then, you know, kind of making them adventurous. So I want to put that as a backdrop uh, really to a lot of our discussion as far as that goes because I think this movie has these different sequences. Um, so, uh, but let's keep going. Uh, I think that's something that really jumped out to me, uh, in the movie. Cause I was like, man, you know, at first, the first time I saw it probably was like, you know, the music's really repetitive. That's interesting. I like it. But then as I thought more about it, I was like, uh, I see the depth here and that's really smart of them to do that. Oh yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to shy away from talking about the music. And I, I think it's good that you brought that up early so that we can follow that throughout. I mean, I think about this movie in a similar way that I think about Interstellar or Inception, where the repetition of the theme is used. And, and like you said, like the slowing, like the pushing and pulling of the tempo of it is used to drive the feeling that you have while you're watching it. And so you can, you can catch it in your feelings, but oftentimes it's easier to just catch it in like physical things or like things that you're, you know, that your senses pick up on. 
So I think that's really good because like you can kind of equate like, oh, when I get when I hear this, I feel this way. Yeah, exactly. And you're you're kind of having that correlation effect, right? Um, you know, when you're watching the movie. So, yeah, I mean, another thing, too, I, I just thought of, sorry, you know, as well as just like, you know, they weren't able to have children, which is, I know, an obvious thing from the entire story setting. But I think those are the two things that really defined, you know, and when they weren't able to have children, that opened it up, presumably, presume presumably to more adventure being able to be had between the two of them in a way. Right. Um, you know, cause you know, if you don't have kids, you can go do a bunch of different experiences. Um, but it doesn't play out like that, does it? And I mean, it, it kind of does, but not totally yeah. what you'd think because they had those goals and they didn't accomplish the one last goal, you know, and that kind of brings us to, you know, maybe where he's, got his confrontations and different things. So I'll let you pick it up. Yeah. So the, the traumatic event that, that drives Carl's development is obviously the death of Ellie, the way that we see it in the movie there, you know, we've seen this scene a couple times where they're climbing up the hill to do this picnic and she can't make it up the hill. Um, I think this is important imagery because it's going to be used throughout the movie. The idea of like having to use, they zoom in on people's feet while they're trying to make it through the journey. And it's a so you know she her journey has ended basically her adventure is over and Carl cannot make peace with that he is really struggling with it um, we we see kind of us fast forward and Carl's now in the middle of this like booming construction and he's the last house on the block that just isn't going to sell he's refusing to he's he still talking to Ellie um, even though she's gone. Uh, he's got all the stuff still in the exact same places that it was before, and he he has failed to move on at all in his life after Ellie passes away. So at the, it's this, at this point that we're introduced to the first kind of conflict for him, which is Russell. <laughs> so talk to me about Russell. Talk to me about the difference between Carl and Russell as as Russell, this Boy Scout kid who this peppy little uh, little kid who's just like full of ideas comes in. Yeah, I well, the first thing that that I can immediately remember, right, is he wants to help him, but um, you know, Carl ends up having him run after a snipe, and I don't know for those that have not run after snipes before, but I actually did a little bit of snipe hunting myself when I was in Boy Scouts, and uh, so I, I could identify with that quite a lot, actually, um, you know, and I, I honestly bought into it. I was like, you know there's a snipe the snipe's real you know we gotta go catch it i mean <clears throat> i wasn't quite as urgent about it as russell was you know like russell was really looking for that snipe and like he really wanted to help carl out with this snipe problem right um so obviously carl really didn't know russell and so you know he was just like i gotta keep this kid busy so i can get back to i don't know talking to uh my wife who's passed away basically right um, and my routines, I think, I think one of the things that's really important to note that Carl has kind of gotten into a routine. He's had to adapt the routine, uh, in an Ellie vacuum. So, but he basically has the same routine just without her. So he doesn't really want to commit to any changes to that. And so Russell comes and disrupts that. And, you know, when you've got that kind of a strong routine going, uh, I think whether as a leader or, 
uh, you know, or, you know, just, you know, when you're in uh, some kind of organization, et cetera, and people go in to disrupt that, you kind of get annoyed, right? And it, it's it's easy to fall into that trap of getting annoyed with somebody who disrupts your routine. Um, and that's kind of how he, I think, directs his uh, his feelings towards Russell um, in that case. So, but I, I, Russell, I haven't even talked about Russell as a person, but he's just like, you know, really, uh, I would say uh, a down to earth as far as he wants to help, but obviously very like suggestible. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's an endearing quality actually of a mentee really, I think in some, in some respects is that, you know, they trust the words that you say immediately and I think that's something that can be refreshing in a certain, like an early mentee. But you can't really ask him to do a whole lot. You know, you have to be very explicit with your directions. Is that, is that how you think about it, too, with, with, with Russell, Drew? Yeah. No, he's a wide-eyed archetype of a child, right? That's – this isn't like – like when we talked about Pinocchio, we have – a cartoon or a fairy tale here. And so it ends up being a lot of archetypal characters that get cast into here. So the, the juxtaposition of those two on the team where Carl is this very regimented, structured, uh, pessimistic type of a guy uh, you know, next to Russell, who's this, this wide eyed kid who sees the world as being full of possibilities um, you see really, and, and which one of them is going to, you know, I guess they play out together, but which one of them's view of the world is going to be more aligned with their purpose and their journey that they're going on and who's going to teach, you know, what are they going to teach each other as they go on this journey? So I guess let's get to the journey because that's the interesting part as we start to talk about this mentor mentee relationship that we have. So, um, then they tell him that they say they're going to take Carl's house finally because he, you know, has like a physical confrontation with one of the construction workers. Um, again, he's just offended and his offense leads him to do something that uh, hurts him. So they they end up taking him away and wanted to put him in a retirement home. So instead of doing that, you know, he's this balloon guy. So he, he has all these balloons come out um, in this grand trick that he uses to float the house away so that he can protect the house, which has all of these physical things that remind him of Ellie in it. And he wants to take it to Paradise Falls, which is this this image that Ellie has painted and that they have a dream uh, of going to in the adventure book. And of course, at this point, Russell is still on the porch when this happens. So Russell gets taken away on this journey as well. And this is where we have kind of the Wizard of Oz moment where they're not in Kansas anymore and they kind of fly up and then end up you know, landing, crash landing, whatever, um, at the, um, in Paradise Falls. It's the first time we see Russell as capable because um, immediately Carl doesn't want to trust him. He doesn't want to give him any responsibility. He tunes him out with his hearing aid. And yet Russell is the one who ends up being like, I figured out how to steer it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's that one awkward moment too where he fantasizes about him going out the window. <laughs> that was pretty funny. And it, they use that trick also in another movie, uh, Toy Story 4, uh, where those two stuffed animals, you know, I'm sorry, I just got to jump off on this side thing for a second. But, you know, the two stuffed animals are talking about how to get that key from that lady on Toy Story 4. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing. It's like these really like kind of creepy scenarios, but they're but they're funny because it's a cartoon and, you know, you're like, oh, OK, we're back. Um, so, you know, that's the way rabbit holes work. Right. Um yeah, I mean, 
what else can I say about, you know, about, you know, them being up in the air, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of it's this intermediate stage. Uh, it's kind of funny because uh, Russell has that uh, GPS. He's like, I can see anywhere in the world. And then he like loses that out the window. Um, and then, like you said, they, they crash land and then they get into this, um, this situation where they're pulling the house around by the, the garden hose. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting and I'm sure there's some deep metaphorical truth there, but I'm just going to leave that alone. Uh, and you know, so that's where we're baggage. at. He's dra- look, he's dragging this baggage yeah. of his life with him and, and, and yeah. you see Russell is unencumbered. He's just like, like prancing around, finding friends and stuff. And, and he's having an incredible time on this journey. And yet this journey is such a burden to Carl because he's dragging this house behind him. And then, the, the character of Russell, he doesn't even mind helping, right? He's willing to help because that's that's who he is. He's a servant. And and that's what Boy Scouts has kind of taught him. And that's that's why he's he feels like that's why he's there. That's how he earns his badge is by is by being of service to somebody. Yeah, no, I, I think you're you're spot on with, you know, and I, I like I like how they did that, obviously. The the total explicit baggage versus so many times, you know, baggage has always been like a metaphorical, like you know, kind of like a Debbie Downer term, like, womp, womp, you got baggage, you know, um, sorry, you've got baggage, um, you know, and that's what adults, they just, that's how they like, they zip it all up in that, in that bag. And they just like, that's the stuff I don't talk about. But in Carl's case, it's really, you know, it's all the stuff that actually he does want to talk about. He's always into it. Right. So that's a little bit difference, uh, with, with the baggage, at least in this movie, which is kind of cool, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, so they're dragging it around, and uh, tell me what happens next, storyteller. Yep, so this is where they, they run into, pretty soon afterwards, they run into the snipe. Um, the snipe's name is Kevin, or the snipe is named Kevin, I guess, by Russell. Um, we can kind of jump around in the story here, but after, of course, um, just being true to his character, Carl does not want any complications in this story. He is dead set on this destination of getting this house to the top of Paradise Falls and and having this kind of pretty um, ending to his story. So he's trying to, you know, <laughs> uh, Russell's always trying to bring everybody else into the narrative. He's trying to, to make this adventure fun, and Carl's doing his best to squash that. They run into Doug. This is where everything's kind of just going off the rails, right? Doug is this dog who talks or has this collar on him that makes him be able to talk. We find out there are other dogs around here. You know, you put two and two together and eventually they show you that there is, of course, the explorer Charles is here and his dogs that you saw in the movie at the beginning. um, He's still working with those dogs and they've advanced even further to be able to talk at this point. Um, and, And of course... Charles kind of even looks like this nefarious character. So they have this this confrontation with Charles. Uh, initially, Charles is, you know, brings them in and wants to, you know, he like welcomes them in. But um, he is just so focused on finding this snipe. And, and how many years has he been focused on finding this snipe at this point? I don't know. Well, but isn't that what people's approval does to you sometimes? It enslaves you, you know. And so because he's, you know, not not really done anything to address that and he hasn't had any disturbances. Well, it actually it's funny because he did talk through all the people who came by. And he was like, well, this person was just passing through and this person was just passing through. And he like he still fed himself the narrative that they were after whatever he had. Right. Um, and so he didn't really make friends with them. It didn't really show what happened to them. 
it just was like they're gone um and yeah he's still he's still focused on that and i mean it's it's people's approval can be a real uh a real magnet right it can really it can really be a real boat anchor i should say um and it can pull you down and i think that what that's kind of what made his life so small is you know i'm going to get redeemed from this and i'm going to have some redemption and and then everything's going to be fine again um it's a classic case of constantly looking back and maybe forgetting where you're going. Um, that's kind of where Charles was at. And and it's funny because, like you mentioned to me before we, we started all this today, was just like, you know, how there's a parallel, right, between Carl and Charles um, as far as their, their style of leadership is really more of a, uh, a retroactive, like looking back and what can I fix about the past? Um, I'm not so much concerned about what my future is, but like, you know, just my now, like if I fixed my past, then my now would be good. My, my now would be better, you know? Um, but that really <laughs> gives you a, a crappy situation for the now, you know? Right. Yeah. It's not, that's definitely not what we, what we want to do as leaders. We want to take a flexible approach to things. We want to pivot often. <laughs> what they're doing there doesn't allow for any of that, basically. It's like, they're weirdly, they're reflecting on the past, but they're not like completing the reflection cycle. The, the reflection cycle requires that at the end, you prioritize some takeaways and changes that you're going to make based on it. Not that you just are so hyper-focused on the past that you can't ever get out of it. And that you just, you know, you'd never stop locking eyes with this incident that happened in your life or whatever you're focused on. So I think they completely they, they're spinning out of control at this point. Basically, they're just like running into things, don't really know who they're hurting or, you know, they're, they're not easing their own pain at all by by doing this. But they're kind of just like stuck in this routine. And, you know, it seems to me like Charles is just going out every day, sending, you know, he's just kind of like sending these dogs out searching for the snipe. That's his life. Yeah. And, and anybody he's who comes gets in his lazy. way, he does away with. He's gotten a little lazy in it, too, though, hasn't he? He's just like, you know, I mean, it's kind of funny, but he I think he did get a little lazy. If you're relying on dogs to go out, I mean, they are like fairly intelligent dogs because they somehow can talk. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess on Wonder Tour, we should like engage that for one second. I have no idea where he got this tech at. So um, that's kind of funny. But what um, do the dogs mean? That's what I'm curious about. I, I haven't been able to figure that out is like what? You know, again, it's a fairy tale. So, like, everything in it seems to have some kind of a meaning. What do the dogs mean? Yeah, I think it's um, – I think that if you're talking about business, I think they're more of yes men um, and or yes women, right? So these are people who always say yes to you. And um, how – it just – for me, it speaks to me so loudly. It screams at me and says, um, don't surround yourself with people that always tell you yes, Oh yes, yeah. You just you should do that. That's the, with you know that's exactly that's a great idea. All that's perfect. You know if you're always getting that, um, how in the world are you ever going to see? And we'll talk a little bit more about this later. But you know how are you, how are you ever going to see like where a vision could take you, right? If everyone's always saying, oh yes, let's do that, let's do that. Um, you know you're not you're getting you're getting into more of groupthink territory. And I think that's why he couldn't find Kevin. I mean, yeah, just, yes, exactly. No diversity of thought. Yeah. 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 Who's your inner circle? Right. That's yeah, that's exactly. what you have to think about. And Charles just surrounds himself with people who are, you know, well-meaning, but aren't getting the job done. It's <laughs> it, it's it, they're not deviating. They're just doing the same thing, going out and doing the exact same thing every single day to to no results, basically, or to, to bad results. 
That's not the situation we want to find ourselves in. So I think we're at a good point here to break into the moment that we have for our episode. Our moment is focused on um, the reaching of Paradise Falls. So just to get us there, he eventually, they have this, uh, obviously, the confrontation with Charles. They they make it out of there. Um, they have, Charles is going to burn down the house, which has all of these memories and, you know, everything that, that Carl ascribes meaning to in his life because it's all just this pristine image of how he remembers Ellie. And when Charles goes to burn that, um, he's so focused on that that uh, he doesn't even see what's going on with Kevin and the fact that that Charles is just trying to really abuse Kevin in order to to avenge himself of his past, you know, failings in the media, basically. Um, so he feels he, he has this chip on his shoulder, the bad kind of chip, right? The revenge kind of chip that he's going to get this snipe and he's going to clear his name and and. He'll do anything to to get there. And Carl is broken in a similar way where he's, you know, he'll he'll sacrifice Russell or, or Kevin if he can just save the house. Right. If he can just keep this image in his mind of Ellie, you know, it would be it would be worth everything to him, basically. Yeah, I mean, well, and I, I think that's perfect where the way you frame that and Carl, when when the house, you know, gets in jeopardy. That house and those things have become an obsession to him, almost an addiction of sorts, right? Where he's just like addicted to them and being in there and sitting down in that chair and, um, you know, polishing the windows. <laughs> I think of that earlier in the in the movie where he's polishing the windows. Uh, I'm like, my goodness, I wish I had time to polish windows. Not really, but, um, <laughs> you know, and, and then when when it starts to burn, the prospect of it being gone now enters his mind. Uh, whereas before, I'm not sure if he really considered that. Um, I think that putting the balloons on the house was more to spite those people around him than it was even about his dream. And then he's like, oh, crap. Now I kind of have to go through with this because I really, uh, you know, I've got a one way ticket here. But anyway, I had to transport back to that because I wanted I wanted to highlight the fact that what's motivating him. What's motivating that chip on his shoulder, as you as you pointed out. Um, but, yeah, when he starts to lose that house, I think that's the beginning of uh, the transformation. But Ellie gives him a quick uh, kick in the rear end to get him going. Right. Tell me a little bit about what he finds and how that how that changes, how it changes him. Well, yeah, I think we first got to hit the moment hard here because he finds he goes back into the house after the moment right or, or is what you're talking about when he finds it being like what he finds within himself oh what he finds oh i see what he finds when he reaches what oh what he finds when he reaches the destination okay sorry i'm tracking with you now yeah so he that that takes us to our moment um where now charles has taken away kevin but oh he's they're able to you know they've reached the top of paradise falls and we see this zoom out and suddenly you can see the house on Paradise Falls, and it's exactly the image of the destination that Carl has had in his mind this whole time. And the music yeah. fades, and there's this yeah. vacuum. And he reaches the destination, and all he finds is emptiness. Yeah, and there's nothing there, is there? I mean, I mean, you know, Russell's kind of an earshot away, but but really, when you think about inside Carl's mind, 
uh, Russell still doesn't have a whole lot of value. Russell's an annoyance. Russell is an outside, um, I don't know, just whatever, just a noise, you know, to him. It's not something that just gets on his nerves um, <clears throat> because I think uh, Carl was in a little bit of a trance, right? But what Ellie wrote uh, in the book uh, really helped him snap out of it, right? She said, go have another adventure. And that gave him permission finally. And, you know, I, I have a theory. I don't know if it's true or not, but, you know, we, we talk about the Enneagram on here. And my, my theory was that Carl was a one with a nine wing. And I say this because he really is looking to have a rule establish what he can do and what he can't do. And Ellie established a rule here and she said, go have another adventure. Well, she's like the number one authority, uh, authority figure in his life. Right. And so she's just like, oh, OK, she's giving me permission. So now I actually have permission to let her go. Right. I have permission to uh, move on here. You know, as a leader, um, I it's really hard to totally um I would say empathize with that situation all the time. If you want to be an effective leader, you can't always be waiting for somebody to give you permission to lead. Um, it's it's great to hear it. Um, sometimes you can't do that though, right? Sometimes you just gotta you gotta jump into it. And a lot of times, what I tell myself, and I, I'd be interested to see what you tell yourself here, Drew. But um, in order to get over the hump, sometimes I just tell myself, "This is what's right," um, and so. I go with uh, my own personal values um, as well as maybe whatever organization I'm working within uh, or helping, et cetera, whatever their values are. And when I find that alignment, I say to myself, this is right. Um, can you kind of speak to that a little bit about how you get yourself over the hump without an Ellie giving you explicit permission? Yeah, because you're not going to get explicit permission like that most of the time. It's I think it's good exercise to stop and ask ourselves, who do we give that authority to in our lives? Because it's good to have mentors that provide guidance, right? That can put a, you know, can, can give us edges of the box to operate within and stuff like that. But to ascribe that much value to a human, that they are the one who gives you authority to do everything, right? As a kid, it's your parents, absolutely. That's that's the role, that's how your development happens. But as an adult, especially to give that to somebody who is dead, no matter what your reverence for that person is, is extremely, extremely dangerous, right? We have to avoid that. And sometimes if it's unavoidable, we have to figure out how to get ourselves out of that. So I think that's kind of what you're asking me is how do you get yourself out of that and how do you give yourself the permission to move on or how do you give yourself the um, for me, like when I think about one of the cleansing traumas in my life, right, when my sister passed away, it took a long time. But the way that I had to move past it was not by putting too much reverence on her, but it was by really leaning into reflection and retrospection and processing those feelings. And when I had processed the feelings and over-processed them, it felt like to me as somebody who, you know, isn't always that touchy-feely, and by the point at which I had over-processed them, I had started to see, like you're saying, kind of these points that ascend from the 
rest of the thoughts that I have. And those points that came out for me was things like, you know, I need to, I said this was a cleansing trauma for me. So it was like, I need to be a better person. I need to develop a better character. I need to, but I don't do this for, just for Danielle, because of, you know, it's, it's more so that I do this. I had to do it for myself. I had to do it for other people. And that's, I think, where we get to the heart of Up for me, which is, and the heart of Wonder Tour, which is why do we want to become better leaders? Because only when we establish the why are we going to be able to get ourselves over the ruts of life that are going to stop us, right? There's, you can't control who's going to, who's going to live and who's going to die most of the time. It's just not what you're going to get to do. And you're going to have those close relationship ties where that happens. It's going to be how you overcome in those moments that that defines you. We talked about it last week. I think we talked about the crucible. So how do you get through those crucible moments? So, Derek, to you, what's your why of leadership? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's um, it's really about unlocking potential that I see in people. Um, thank you for sharing that other that other uh uh, angle there on your, uh, you know, in your own personal life. Um, and I think about when in career, right. Uh, you know, I see a lot of people that may be at the brimming point and they may be just, they're kind of like maybe Carl a little bit. I try to think about it in terms of business here and say that, you know, there, there are a lot of people who are at that point, that tipping point where all you need to do, and we've touched on this a few times in different episodes, but you may just need to, um, you know, give them that permission in a way. And when I was talking about permission before too, I was also talking about, you know, obviously don't, don't ever break any laws or regulations or stuff like that. That's not what we're talking about here at all. We're talking about things that, uh, other people aren't stepping forward to lead a certain initiative. It could be something innovative and it's just scary. It could be a new technology that you're wanting to learn, um, you know, it, it, it could be a new skill that, you know, the company needs. Um, I have a great example of that, right? My father-in-law, yeah. my father-in-law talks about how he in the, in the, I think early nineties decided to, he was making the the career jump and he was deciding if he was going to invest in a, in a nice, in a nice computer at that point. And he ended up he ended up he was really close on the edge going back and forth and he ended up going like you were talking about he gave himself permission to do it and he was like you know what i know that you know i know that this might not pan out how i'm thinking it's going to but i'm going to do it and it turns out that you know it was the you know one of the, the great career moves of his life basically and he moved into the it field and and yeah but he he talks about how he had to give himself permission to to be able to uh to make that jump and be able to take a risk on himself yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, you, you, you know, I mean, people aren't always going to be, you know why I think that is, is if you kind of flip the situation around and see how people see you, they're too busy in their own mess. <laughs> and a lot of times being a leader is being aware of what's going on. And honestly, Carl, like I said, he was in a trance. I really do believe that. I mean, he was in this trance of routine and habit. And I mean, honestly, this is the suspension of disbelief. Um, because if this wasn't a movie, I think Carl would have went to Shady Oaks, you know, and we all knew that. That's why we all thought, oh, crap, he's going to Shady Oaks. 
right in the movie and then you know the movie obviously has the balloons on it. and if it didn't have the balloons i think we all would have just thought that's the end of this he would have like i don't know i don't know what it would have been this boring movie ever right but so because it's a cartoon because there's this suspension of disbelief you know they were able to throw that in there and there's this miracle moment right and i think that you know the story really speaks to to both of us in that regard is that um you know as a leader, if you if you make your mind up to be a leader, if you make your mind up to identify a limiting belief about yourself um, and you're open and objective to yourself. Right. And I know this sounds like a bunch of maybe anyway, I'm just speaking as you know from experience, basically. Right. Um, but if you are open to to what is holding you back and you make the decision to you know, push yourself over. Or if you have an Ellie, that's, that's great. I mean, a lot of us just don't have someone who understands us to that depth, um, that, that Ellie did. Right. And she, she looked over their whole life and, you know, and she, she was like, you know, this was awesome. This was an awesome adventure. That's what she was saying in those pictures. Um, and then giving him that permission, um, you know, I think that's a wonderful thing to write, you know, uh, in a parting letter in a parting word, um, because that's what that person needs. And to think about a career, you know, you, your travel through a career with somebody, I think you need to say the same thing to someone who's moving on to a new company, who's moving on to a new division, uh, et cetera. You know, you've got to be able to, uh, give that person permission to keep succeeding because they, if they were really closely working with you and it's kind of bittersweet for them, you've got to, I mean, I don't know, this is just my opinion, but you, you really should do what you can to make sure that they don't have any reservations about what they're going to next. And I think that takes us back to Carl and his decision to start heaving stuff out of the house. He starts throwing stuff out of the house. He starts lightening the load. And I've been at that point in my career where, you know, you've got, uh, you know, things that you can drop, you can let go of, you can say, you know what, I need to pass this responsibility on to this person. I'm holding it back. It's selfish of me to do that. I'm actually scared of taking this next thing on. Um, but when you make that decision, right, you take that and then you you can then start making the space and start bailing the stuff out of the house so that you can become light again. And to go back to what you said at the beginning, Drew, you have to remove the callousness uh, of of life, right? And your career is definitely a callous that can build up over time. And you need to I think you said like, you know, saying that down. I think of like, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think but I, you might I, be, uh, you, you might be talking on the part that we recorded uh, and then misrecorded. So it might not be in the actual episode. So yeah, at the beginning of the episode, uh, of, the, of the original episode, I was talking about the, we made a tick- uh, yeah, the idea that <laughs> we have a, that we, the idea that like that up helps us to break and mo- movies pieces of media, whatever it might be, like up, right? Adventures, actually, that's the word I'm looking for, like up, help us to break out of the callous that the world puts on us, right? We get this callousness that breaks up, I mean, it starts to build up on us, and we need something to sand it down, right? We have to get rid of this callousness, otherwise we're going to become like a Carl or a Charles. And so this movie has such deep feels in it that it's something that you can go to to be able to reignite your spirit of adventure. Yeah, you, you need a reset, right? And I think that's it, it, a reset isn't bad. You know, you want to reset on some of those things that you've been dragging along. And, you know, they call that, you know, whatever, a career pivot, whatever it is, a mid-career pivot, whatever it may be, 
um, you know, you've got to be open to those things and it could be something that could be really challenging to you, but you've got to give yourself permission and you got to look at your values, make sure you're not doing anything illegal. <laughs> um, you know, all the good things there and, you know, uh, make those decisions. Right. So. But those so decisions get, are made. Those decisions are, are really made without any kind of a guaranteed payback. And that's what the adventure is all about. Right. It's the adventure is not some destination. And we it's so cliche. And it's obvious that this is like the main point of this movie is that life is about the adventure, not about the destination. And we all hear it so many times. But then we get this tunnel vision on the destination and we're just like oh if i just had that next house if i just had you know if i could just get a, a, a master's degree or something like that right i don't know what it is for you in your life maybe it's a you know a car or or you know something in your family you know you could just get promoted to that position at work you get so dead set on this destination that everything kind of revolves around reaching it and when you get there you end up on the top of paradise falls and you're like well this is a beautiful view but it's hollow <laughs> yeah well there's nobody to share it with yeah, even the view is kind of boring after you watch it all day long, right? I mean, I think that was the 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 luster of it was that, you know, that he barely got to see that or whatever, you know, or he never even got to see it except in a movie. Um, and I think that's that's the perfect way to get caught by something like that, you know, is that it, 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 there's such a small quantity of it there. Um, but now he's in overexposure, right? So now he's... Uh, he's got so much of it that all the definition is gone. Um, and so he's just like, you know, I mean, honestly, that's the way that's the, the response that I could take from it is he didn't even have to say anything. You just look at his face and he's just like, OK, you know, and uh, so then, you know, he he realizes after what Ellie writes that he's got to he's got to help uh, Russell, you know, and so he goes and and essentially rescues him and. Um, I don't know. What else did you want to really hit on the end of the movie here? Because I think we can we can go into the rest of our our items uh, that we normally yeah. hit on under tour. Yeah. The, I mean, the end of the movie is is all just really all about kind of getting closure on all of this. And it's interesting for a movie that's not about the destination that there's it's, there's seemingly a lot of closure in this movie. But the closure is not in some complete picture that we get because we see that that's hollow. The closure is instead in in the open endedness of the adventure. It's that now the door is open for adventure again. We have we're, we're no longer do we have a fixed mindset. We have an open mindset um, that that is coming out of Carl and, and Russell. And they have this relationship. And, and now Carl is focused again on people. Right. So like you said, we don't need to talk too much about it. We haven't even really mentioned Doug or, or Kevin very much. You know, we don't have time on Wonder Tour to go into every little depth of it. We want to focus on just bringing a a exciting light to this movie that hopefully can help all of us to, um, you know, just better develop our character for the good of others, because that's why we're doing this leadership journey, this Wonder Tour. So, yeah, I mean, is there anything else that we need to say other than the fact that they go up to the blimp that that Charles is driving and eventually, you know, they, they overcome Charles and they save Kevin and turns out the dogs weren't weren't bad in the first place. They were just had a bad master and then they they make it back to uh, they make it back home. And uh, in the end, Russell gets his medal. He's on the stage and he gets his medal. There's uh, whatever his Boy Scouts badge. And there's just the, you know, the really sad scene where. Or whatever, and I guess just happy, sad, whatever you want to call it, where uh, Carl gives him the grape soda, the Ellie badge, basically, 
And, you know, Russell at this point knows, even though he's a kid, he knows what it means to Carl to give that to him. He's like, wow, he's well, finally yeah, moving this, on. This is a good place to talk about, um, I think, metaphorically, the way Carl thinks his life is structured. Um, obviously, we've talked a lot about how Carl is very structured. Um, I mentioned that he was a type one. You know, there's there's rules. There's rules to living life. I, I'm, I'm not a type one, so I don't really profess to understand type ones completely okay, but I use it as a, a little bit of a guide. Um, and what I want to say is that let, let's look at Carl's face, right? Carl, his glasses are a box. His face is kind of a box. Everything about his life has been boxed in and figured out. And so he only has like slots for certain things and certain people. And um, until he finally accepted Russell, um, he did not have a box for him. Right. But then Ellie finally gave up her box um, with her comment. Right. That she wrote down. And so then he said, OK, well, Russell fits right inside that box. So I want to make the argument here that that. Uh, Carl, I don't really think had a huge change in his life, even though it looks like from the movie, he had a huge change. I think he really just said, I'm going to go on a new adventure. And I think that was a great jump for him because he, he didn't really want to stretch that much in the first place. But I mean, being at the end of his life, you know, uh, the last phase of his life, I, I should say, right. And making that amount of change was huge, uh, for him. And so I want to give him a lot of credit for that. But I also want to say, look, you know, um, he's kind of boxed in. And, and so, you know, well, I think your ability to change is going to be hindered by the existing structures in your mind. Right. Like you're you're going to have more room to be flexible when you have less structure in your head already. And being a, a guy who's been through a lot already, he has a lot of that structure already built. So you're right. Like his his space that he can change in probably isn't that large. But I would argue that there's a pretty profound change which happens there when he when he gets rid of his stuff right in the pixar we always have like the light switch on uh, moments i think it's you know not in every movie but in a lot of the pixar movies we do have that light switch on moment that is carl's light switch moment when he realizes like it's not about the stuff it's about the people that's what the adventure is about you know the adventure is a living thing the adventure is not a static image that i'm trying to somehow get to and that once i get there everything's just going to be fantastic right the adventure is in the people. So I do think he learned that that the Ellie, the whole thing with Ellie was not about where they went. It wasn't about what they saw or any of that. It was about the fact that he was on an adventure with Ellie. Yeah, I mean, you're you're right. I mean, there is something there where, you know, obviously he realizes that he can be an influence on Russell's character. And maybe maybe for the first time, because I think that there was a real picture that I got, which was that he was, you know, happily you know, 100% happily doing Ellie's bidding uh, almost the entire movie, right? He just loved to make her happy, right? And so there was so much of that. And I think uh, when you get into a situation where, let's say, you have an Ellie in your life, et cetera, and I'm not really talking about necessarily a marriage relationship per se. I'm really talking about someone that you work with that you just want to work with them, um, but there's not there's nothing more than you just kind of helping them, but that doesn't really develop you. And I think that's a, it's a, I think that's, it's related to the tunnel vision. Um, I don't know if you want to kind of talk a little bit about that and about, you know, how that relates to something that we talked about in a past episode, which was vision density. Um, 
What do you think? Yeah, so let's 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 bring back vision density real quick because I think we want to talk about that. So vision density we talked about in the Greatest Showman episode where we kind of said again it's an imperfect model but we like to make these uh, primitive models for things because they help us to figure out how to think and what the wisdom is in the situation. And so our primitive model for vision density was all about how um, you vision is like a gas and it's inside of this container and your vision can be too dense um, inside the container, in which case like you're um, you're kind of wasting it. If the vision is too dense, it, it's it's not achieving, you know, it's going to achieve a point solution, but it's not going to be pervasive. But if your vision gets too, if your container, you know, you increase the size of the container, then but you keep the vision the same size, um, then you're going to have a watered down vision to the point where nobody's actually able to follow it. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's there's something about, you know, something about making money. That's the vision of our business. <laughs> and that's like the risk is that you fall into that type of a watered down, um, a watered down vision density. But here we have a little bit different. Um, we have what I think I'm calling tunnel vision for now where you're you're stuck on this image and you're not flexible on your vision right your vision is not pivoting it's not adapting you're just stuck on this one thing at the beginning you talked about how charles and carl are both kind of like stuck looking in the past at one incident and they can't get out they can't unlock their gaze from it yeah and it, it really becomes like a laser beam of sorts right it's so so focused which is great, but that's more like a task. You know, I think you've said it before. It's like, you know, if you don't have strategy, you're kind of just doing one-off tasks. And um, that's what it turns into. It becomes more, even more esoteric than a vision should be. It it, it really feels too far off. Um, and, you know, I think that's the risk that you run with those type of visions. And I don't know how really, I mean, it was kind of, now that I look back on it, you know, the house being at Paradise Falls, there really wasn't a whole lot else to pull you forward with that vision as well. Because so because it was so much end of the tunnel vision uh, part, there weren't any flank, flanking ideas uh, that would flesh out the vision uh, that would make it compelling enough to actually do it. For instance, you know, why would you move your house? You would just move your house to sit it at the top of a waterfall? That doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah, um, it's not contextualized very well inside of the story, yeah. right? It's like the vision was, the vision should have been and was, it seemed like, for Ellie to have adventures. And one one way that, one adventure they were going to have might have been Paradise Falls, because that's just something that was kind of like a nostalgia trip for her as a child because of the movie that they had both watched that had brought them together. But the the danger is when you get locked in on the destination and you don't you forget about the journey and that's what happens and i think that we can get back to the idea of being callous because i think that happens over time and i think the callous uh kind of metaphor there is is pretty good for it it's if you're not paying attention over time your vision is going to become calloused right you're, you're you just become callous the world if you just kind of drone along and don't reflect and don't and don't have those adventures, then you just get this callous builds up on you. And suddenly you're just, you know, you just kind of end up doing something stupid, just like you see Carl do, just like you see Charles do. Right. You're just like, man, he has the best of intentions. Both of them do. And yet they get so fixated on this one small thing for Charles. It's just it's we're going to find uh, we're going to find the snipe. 
and we're going to clear our name. It's like he didn't have to clear his name that way. There were a million ways for him to clear his name. And, and you know, one of them was just to be like, you don't have to believe me. I'm going to keep doing this and and you can do what you want to do. But no, he he got so tunnel visioned on this thing. He let the world beat him down. And for Carl, that's when you. Oh, go ahead. No, no. Go and for, for Carl, he, he has tunnel vision on a good thing. He has tunnel vision on Ellie. You know, the, the greatest thing that happened in his life. But the thing is, she doesn't even want him to have tunnel vision on her at this point. Right. She wants to release him. She wants him to continue to be able to have adventures and to build relationships, which is what the adventure is all about. So this is kind of where we're tying back in the moment to the moral uh, and to the mentor situation. Right. Because Russell, he gets that and he has that childlike awe. He's all about the adventure every step of the way. He's just about the adventure. He's like, oh, crap, we ran into a talking dog. Sweet. Can we bring him with? He's like, he's going to be a part of the team now. He's going to help us do something. I don't know what, but he's going to help us do something. And I'm not saying that's the only way to adventure, but, right, you need some of that on your team when you're going on an adventure. Well, I mean, I would love for every leader. I know this is a tall order, but I would love for every leader to have that portability of childlike wonder. Uh, from the time that they're young, young until the time that they're older, right? Um, and I was thinking back to the callousness point that you're talking about. I think every time you have a disappointment, um, and it may be that you don't, you know, you don't achieve the vision. Um, I think the more laser focused your vision is, when you have a disappointment, those calloused, those calluses build up faster for a far off singular vision. Then if you were to diffuse your disappointment over a wider range, right, um, if you have a wider vision for your future, that means you have more alternative endings for your future. And you're having a more realistic vision for yourself uh, in your career and, your, you know, whatever. I, you know, I never thought that I would necessarily end up in the particular um, area of the economy that I ended up in, right? Uh, I just never really – that wasn't really part of my particular vision for myself. But I was fine when it happened. I was like, you know, that that still takes me towards, uh, you know, having that engineering background and discipline and uh, achieving something of meaning. Uh, right. And so but when you have one particular one, I think you're I think disappointment really hits you a lot harder. And you've got to look at as a leader, uh, do you really want to let disappointment have such a voice in your life? that you know it uh it, it makes you so calloused and i think that's when is that let me ask you this drew it, it is an accumulation of calluses i think does that lead to jaded is oh, that absolutely. what creates jaded yeah so yes it, it, that, that's definitely what creates jaded if we're saying that the calluses are, are built up from wounds of the world then yes that would lead to being jaded yeah and i think jaded is literally you've got all these sharp edges and, you know, you've tried to sand it off, but it's just it's, you almost feel like it's too late, you know. But if you have a miracle moment and I don't know what that miracle moment is for you specifically, that's that's something for you to think about. You know, uh, what is it that, you know, shakes the foundations of those calluses? Right. And allows you to basically I mean, some at some level you have to almost branch around it. You know, you need a miracle moment like Carl had where he got new information, new information that that blew the top off of all the models he had in his mind of how the world worked, uh, how relationships worked, uh, how it was going to go, um, you know, and when he got that information, he had a miracle moment that that changed the direction. 
And it really wasn't that hard. He didn't know it was there. He didn't know that, you know, even for him. And, and I argue that maybe he, his capability strategically was only a tunnel because that's just who he is. And I'm not going to say that I want him to deny who he is. He just needs to take a different tunnel, you know, and sometimes you get to a point where there's a junction and you can pick a different tunnel for yourself. You know, maybe that was Carl's capacity. I, I really don't know. I mean, I think that that, you know, for different people, that's different capacities for vision. You know, everybody has to understand the vision, whether you're a leader who's casting the vision or whether you're at the lower level and you're you in the organization or in the family or whatever it is. And you're kind of being cast the vision you get to play a part in in what that vision looked like and you have to internalize it and figure out what you're going to do with it. So for me, I think one of the key takeaways here is, you know, how do we break down the word adventure? Because adventure is such an interesting thing to most people. Like if you're on this wonder tour with us, you're probably a big fan of adventure. How do you capture that spirit of adventure in your life? How do you build up you're, you're, instead of letting your muscles decay and getting that callousness on your on your body from the world, how do you flex that adventure muscle and allow it to, to keep this, it, it helps you to keep this vibrant vision um, that's also flexible, like you said, because if the vision is too static, then eventually the vision just becomes another destination for you. Yeah, and there's no payoff when you get when it just you know when it's a destination and you you know you forget about what kind of adventure you can have along the way. Um, yeah, I mean I, I really like how you put it. I really like what you said there. I mean, is there anything else that we want to kind of pull out of you know the the, the final moments of of kind of going through this? Well, what's adventure to me? I, I want to finish on trying to trying to capture that and trying to take this away as an application. And I think we need to for ourselves better understand what adventure is i i've kind of been racking my brain trying to think about it and and adventure we said it before it's a living thing right adventure is character development it's this kind of purpose-filled direction you know directional force where you're going to go through highs and you're going to go through lows. And through that, you're going to develop character. Your team is going to develop character. It's the type of character that can't really be developed by sitting at home and watching Netflix. Yeah, that's true. I mean, okay, I see you're, you're triggering something for me here. So I kind of had this conversation with this guy, uh, Maxwell, uh, the other day. And uh, so he was we were just talking about, you know, he's kind of a mechanical guy. And so we were talking about, um, I know this is totally random, but we were talking about, you know, nanotechnology and just some of the neat things that have come from nanotechnology, like, you know, uh, paints that water can't adhere to, you know, those are called hydrophobic paints, right? I mean, it's just fa fascinating stuff. Um, one of the ones he talked to me about was this, this uh, black paint and it's, uh, it's called black 2.0 paint. And then there's also black 3.0 paint, which is the newest uh, black paint that's out there. And uh, check that out on YouTube because what what it is is like this paint that absorbs all the light. Um, and it really, when you cover an object in this, and he covered like a mannequin's head, and it had you know when we started it was it was a, a, a you know a completely white mannequin head, and he put this black paint on top of it, and it absorbed all the light, and you couldn't even see that it was a face anymore. You couldn't even see that there was any definition there. 
And what I want to say here is that what that taught me was that, you know, without these hills and valleys, there's no definition. There's no purpose. It's meaningless, right? And if you're talking about an adventure, uh, even the plains, you know, when we talk about the Wild West or whatever, right, the plains were flat. There were still the mountains in the distance. You could still see the mountains coming up, right? You could still see there is an adventure to be had. There's still variation in the plains, you know, but if you think of something that's perfectly flat, I don't know if you've ever played Minecraft, you know, but <laughs> if you're on a perfectly flat level, um, you know, the number one thing you want to do is start building blocks up or taking blocks out. Uh, you know, it's just like innate in you. You want to define it so you can have an adventure. Um, so it's the contrast. It's the definition. It's these ups and downs. That's what gives you the adventure. You know, Ellie triggered that for Carl. And she helped him remember that she was obviously a mindful person. She realized that in the middle of it, right? She was able to reflect. And as Drew said, you know, enter the reflection cycle, exit the reflection cycle and know, you know, that these things were valuable. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, I think for me, the, the, the topper on this is just, you know, adventure is defined by those highs, the lows along the way. And without it, you you really have no meaning and it's going to be very hard to set goals because there's nowhere to go there's nothing to see there's nothing to do there's no problems to be had problems are you know obviously a source of learning right and it's not all hey i, I had an adventure and it was all successes yeah if someone's telling you that they're lying to you <laughs> because yeah. i've never had that experience personally Every time I've ever had an adventure, something's always gone wrong. Something's always messed up. And so anyway, take us home on this one, Drew. Yeah, that, I think that's a good place to uh, to kind of land the plane on. That's I, I just wanted to make sure we got to the application of if you feel like we are lacking an adventure, you know, as a culture, as a team, as an individual, like I want to figure out what do I do? Because I think coming out of of. It, you know, we don't like to, we like to try to make this content fairly evergreen, but right, everybody here experienced COVID, right? Experienced a pandemic. Coming out of that pandemic, we need to re-engage with adventure. We might have, you know, the callousness of the world might have built up on us. So how do we re-engage with adventure? And I think you like the Minecraft example is so easy to look at. If you haven't played Minecraft before, you know, you're just a guy, and there's there's all these blocks everywhere. Um, that you can use and you can mine them with a pick or you can build with them and eventually you can build some more advanced stuff, right? But like when you're starting out on a fresh world, all you do is, you know, you, you can you can build, you know, you can mine down and you can dig down or you can build up with the resources that you acquire, right? Like when you're going on that adventure and you're noticing that like you've tried to stabilize your life too much to the point where like the horizon is just a flat line for you, right? The destination that you've been, you know, the retirement, whatever it is that you've been looking for has just become this still image in your brain. We have to reflect. We have to realize that that thing is not going to be what we want when we get there. It's going to be empty. How can I get adventure? I need to dig down or I need to build up. I have to find a way to capture that adventure in my life. It's different for every single person what that adventure looks like. For you, it might be going and making pottery. You know, for somebody else, it might be, or for like for me, it, it, it's going and hiking or camping or something like that or going to a concert, right? That experience, it just fills my brain with awe. It, it helps re-engage me, 
with with who I am and where I'm going, it helps where that when that vision kind of gets like locked up and stuck, it helps to have it start moving again. And then suddenly it's it's more flexible. And now it's not just tied to this one thing. And I can see clearly. And once I can see clearly, I can execute. So I think that for me, this is this has been a good challenge for like, where does that adventure lie for you? What's your next adventure, right? And, and and part of it is just have an adventure with everything you do. We talk about this on Wondershow. We like to have fun. Make it fun. Part of it is also how do you have an adventure, right? It doesn't have to, you know, just like Ellie had, it, it doesn't have to require a bunch of money or a big trip or something like that. Those are great things. Those are good adventures to go on. But find a way to have an adventure, to have your heart race. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's where I'm. Get, I think I'm running yeah. out of juice here. <laughs> no, no, no. I love that. I love that. No, I, I, it's good. I mean, I, I think that there's, there's just, uh, it's a lot to reflect on. I mean, I don't know that, that, you know, what's, what's interesting about this particular tour that we've just taken is that this one generated more reflective content, I think, than any previous tour, more things to kind of chew on and think about. Um, because, you know, you've got to take it back to your own particular journey as a leader, whatever, whatever context that may be in, you've got to see where it fits in at. And I want the, the last thing that I, I, you know, I want to tie back in here is remember the music, right? Remember the music and the melodic uh, tone that you hear throughout up the movie and it's actually funny today. I was like, I was going out to mow the lawn. This is, I know this is kind of nerdy or whatever, but I was going out to mow the lawn and I was like, I was thinking about doing this later today. And I was thinking, I just started humming to myself like, da, 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 da. and I think this mundane thing that I'm doing, I'm like, this is my adventure. I'm, I'm totally fine with this. I love this. I can feel every bump in the yard. Um, you know, if my, if my yard was so perfect that I didn't feel any bumps and if my yard was so perfect that the mower didn't get, you know, clumped up inside and bogged down sometimes almost the engine dying, um, it'd be kind of boring, honestly. And if the wind didn't blow on my face and if the sun didn't burn my skin, you know, uh, after so much time in there, if these things didn't change, if it was a completely like if I was mowing in a vacuum, I'm sorry, I would not feel like that was an adventure. And I think if you can pick those things out, whatever the context that you're in, then you are going to go a long way towards hearing that music in your own life. Or if you see those, see that music, and when you see music, it's symbols, right? It's it's the people that you love and a rhythm, right? It's it's it could just be friends, it could be colleagues, it could be people you just love working with. It could be the sound of their voice. It could be a particular day of the week. It doesn't matter. You've got to figure out what that is for you. And that's why I say there's so much reflective content here uh, from today's tour, because you've got to figure out what that means for you, you know, and and what stage of Carl you're in. Who knows? That's up for you to figure out. Um, it's something to definitely chew on. It's, it's, it's definitely important. I definitely take that away. Uh, for myself, you know, I'm like, man, I need to think about this a little more. Am I too calloused? Have I, you know, so there's a lot of good questions to be ginned up and, you know, um, you know, after listening to the episode, you know, please feel free to comment, uh, on our Twitter, 
um our handle is what drew at wonder tour podcast at wonder tour podcast on twitter and so throw something out there and just say like look hey you know try to reference the episode number so that you know we'll know we'll jump on that (laughs) and i mean it'd just be great just to see your thoughts on it and um you know for us like i think that's really valuable and it helps us reflect on what we're trying to do here right which is develop our own character and develop the character of those around us um that's it it's not complicated for us as far as that goes we may get into some deep discussions that that obviously remains to be true and i think that's that's why we like doing this right we want to think about and notice some things that don't get talked about that often um i've never heard anything like this about up and (laughs) but it's i've always wondered about the entire time um and so anyway, I, I just really enjoyed our discussion today, Drew. Um, thanks for your, you know, all your thoughts on it. And um, so what do we have coming up next time? Yeah, you can't stop me from going going into deep conversation. I got to say that. <laughs> uh, yeah, people try to stop me from going into deep conversation. And that's been like one of my character development <laughs> goals is to recognize my audience. And sometimes I can't, right? That's what I've learned over my my years on walking the green earth. But <laughs> uh, what do we have coming up next? Yeah, so next week for episode 10, we have a retro episode. So we're going to throw back uh, to our first episode of Wonder Tour that we ever recorded. We didn't want to publish it as episode one because we thought that we had figured out a better formula afterwards um, with the Obi-Wan episode in episode one. And if you've listened this long, you've discovered that we've we've evolved it over the course of 10 episodes over a lot of reflection and iteration. Um, but we thought this original one, the first ever episode that we recorded was really uh, important to air. And it's also one of our very favorite movies, Batman Begins, um, another Nolan film. You kind of see where it all started. I think it's fun, and we thought it was surely good enough to grace your ears. So hopefully, you, if you're listening to episode nine, you trust us with episode ten. Uh, otherwise, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Derek. Absolutely. Likewise, and we will see you next time on Wonder Tours.